Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with John Karczewski, the author of Reality TV. John, thanks for being here with me. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to start off by just having you talk a little bit about why this topic? What got you interested in reality TV and wanting to write about reality TV? Um, well, I've I was uh, this is kind of two two things that brought me to this topic. Uh, one is um, there are two shows that kind of are really made a an impact on my life. Uh, one in terms of reality television. Uh, the first is the 1992 season of The Real World. Um, I thought it was uh, truly different than anything I had ever seen on television. And I liked the look and the feel. Uh, I liked the people who were cast on it. I thought it was really interesting that they were um, artists and intellectuals. And I really, these were people that I wanted to, to be like. Um, they were uh, smart uh, city folks. And somebody to somebody who was growing up in Western Pennsylvania, that notion of intelligence and city life was something that I aspired to. Um, but I was also drawn to reality television from the sleaze factor in the early 2000s, um, which was something completely different, but it also felt really new. Um, and that notion of prime time, uh, mainstream sleaze that you had seen on Jerry Springer and other daytime programs, but that had come to prime time, uh, in a in a genre that felt uh, very different than the than the daytime talk shows, um, so I love that, and uh, I like to say that I got married because of reality TV. Um, <laughs> that uh, when Richard Hatch won season one of Survivor, um, I was so happy that I just jumped up and proposed to my wife on the spot. Um, <laughs> so um, I, <laughs> so it's, it's a genre that's brought me a great joy. Um, so that's kind of what brought me to the topic from just uh, how do I get involved in reality TV? Uh, but the second topic is, you know, how do I get involved in like city spaces? And why was I attracted to a book on the notion of the re- reality television and, and the city? And uh, that's a that's a different story. Um, I grew up uh, right outside of Pittsburgh in the 1980s. My parents were from Pittsburgh. My whole extended family lived in Pittsburgh. Um, so every weekend we were driving through the cities and, uh, you know, I saw the factories closing and the factories weren't running anymore. Um, and not only that, but I saw Pittsburghers move cause there was no employment there. Uh, so as a kid, you know, you really aren't thinking about these in intellectual terms, but it was like a very lived part of my childhood of like the deindustrialization of Pittsburgh. Um, and that kind of just, I put that on hold in my life until 2004 when I took my first job in uh, Texas, in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, and it was the first part of the country where I lived that was really different than where I grew up. And I found myself going to a Pittsburgh Steelers fan bar in Fort Worth, Texas, um, because I wanted to reconnect with home. And so it was really there where I really felt this notion of being displaced from the city and being driven out and wanting to be back, but unable to, to be there. So when I moved back to the Northeast in 2006 to take a job at Seton Hall University, uh, that was another moment where I really felt that centrifugal force moving people out of cities. Uh, and I was living on the eastern border of Pennsylvania, but I was surrounded by New Yorkers and people from New Jersey uh, who could no longer afford their city or their home in, in northern New Jersey. And so it was really um, it was really the beginning of, of my thoughts about what does it mean to live in, in t- today's city in the post-industrial economy and to feel that push outward um, and that transformation of the, the city from a, a working class, a middle class place that I knew as a kid to, uh, to a zone of the elite. Um, and it was very interesting to experience that lived notion of the city and being around New Yorkers in Pennsylvania, but to also watch reality TV, which made city life seem so fun and so accessible um, and open to, to everyone. So that split between what I was experiencing in my home on the eastern border of Pennsylvania and what I was watching on reality television kind of a 
really drew me to this topic. Right, and so you start out by sort of grounding us in some of the the sort of the four the four, like the the beginning reality television, and you start in chapter one using candid camera. Um, American family. So can you talk a little bit about that grounding and why that's important? Yeah. Well, I mean, as a, as a historian, I, I always kind of want to look at the, the big picture and this, this moment in time within the, within a bigger picture of, of history. So yeah, I was writing a lot about contemporary reality uh, programs, but I wanted to look at the bigger picture and realize that what we're seeing today hasn't always been the case. And uh, in fact, the spatial politics, um, when I talk about the closed city and not having access to the city and kind of winning consent for the way things are with the city, that wasn't always the case. So um, I felt it really necessary to go back and look at 20th century precursors um, because they're, they're so different. Um, there's a real egalitarian sense to them that uh, anybody could be uh, could live in the city. That um, with candid camera, there, it was so focused on the working class in New York um, and changing the ways that people thought about gender using the working class. Um, and with American Family, even though that family was really well off financially, they were never positioned as well off. They were positioned as typical, as just one of us. Um, so I really wanted to to investigate that moment, to look at the potential for reality television, to to imagine the city as um, open to various classes, but also being open to reinterpreting the way we construct our identities in it, um, that we can change the way um, you know women in post-war America had access to cars, or we could change the way that um, you know housewives and uh, gay sons were positioned in the family on American family. So I wanted to touch on that, like almost this, um, these transformative moments in reality television uh, in a way that suggests that maybe we can get those moments back, um, that uh, we can change the way reality TVs are told today by looking to the past. Right. And then you sort of ground us in, and you mentioned it, you mentioned it earlier. And it also reading this just brought me back to sitting in college in the basement, watching the real world and just imagine realizing I never had seen anything like that on television. Um, and, and then I was like, Oh, I remember this. I remember when it was so good. Yes. <laughs> like when, when there were like, even if there were issues with it, there were, they were still, and, and you talk about this a bit, they were still sort of like going out into that urban space. And, and so can you talk a little bit about how um, you see the real world sort of, bridging those two, bridging us from what was going on before to what is going on now? Yeah, and, and certainly the real world in part bridged us just with the term reality TV, that a lot of these precursors weren't referred to as reality television, and the real world wasn't at first either, but by 2000, it's firmly known as reality television. So it bridged us just in terms of like the, the discursive category of, of genre that we're, we use the term. Um, but it also, it, it moves us, um, on the one hand, it has this connection to the past and that the city's open to everyone, that these people, even though they're living in the gentrified neighborhood of Soho, I mean, they're going out and talking to, to homeless people and befriending them and going into poor sections of Jersey City and talking about uh, the social problems there. And it's magnificent. And it really is a throwback to candid camera and American family. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, I think we begin to see that throughout the nineties, that there is this movement away from like social justice and, um, uh, direct cinema to a more sleek, sophisticated, formulaic, um, uh, show and by the by the early 2000s they're not even going out into the city it's all about partying and in, in the home and uh, so I think the real world really is one of yeah it really transitions us from the the 20th century to the the 21st century but it's such a good show and I think so many people forget how good those early um, 
seasons were and they just kind of lumped the real world with like 21st century reality television and um the people would just go back and watch the first three seasons there's so much there once after puck i'm done but yes like (laughs) and especially in that third season and i know you talk about the first but it made me think about i couldn't remember what happened in season two but season three with the aids crisis and what was going on and what they were really doing really was pushing boundaries i felt with television absolutely no i i i totally agree and um and not only just the casting of of pedro but just of of sophisticated smart roommates um you know who could who could be a great ally to to pedro was also just uh, i think crucial to the the program and um you know like judd and pam and uh uh, Muhammad, they they were just just crucial to that season as well. So you move from sort of setting that up to to talking about um, sort of the nostalgia and how this twenty first century urban reality television functions. And so, can you talk a little bit about that? What you're doing in chapter two and how that sets up sets us up for your further chapters, which sort of look at specific shows. Yeah, yeah. I really wanted like a broad a chapter to present kind of like a broad overview. And, you know, my mind kind of goes to um, to case studies. And, you know, that certainly happens with chapters three, four and five. But I wanted something to kind of paint a bigger picture of here's what's going on. This is like the big picture view of city life on reality TV. And I think it really is, you know, the way that I frame it is that split between the visuals that we see of the city and then the stories and the sounds that we hear. So the visuals that we see, that's the 21st century city. It's very um, segregated. It's very closed off to all classes except the elite that we're only going to certain parts of the city, um, usually uh, gentrified downtown areas or to rich neighborhoods. Um, and these these areas are made to look beautiful. Like they win us over, we accept them because they're such pretty spaces. They're edited to be pretty. The music highlights how beautiful they are. It's really fun to enter these closed spaces that they present. But that's what when we look at the stories told and the sounds that we hear, that's where we begin to see um, nostalgia. So visually, we see the 21st century city. But the stories that we're seeing are more reminiscent of the 20th century. Um, so stories, for example, of um, uh, uh, the family business, of the family business is so close-knit, it's really tight, it's loving, the markets are really small, these people don't participate in global capitalism, they seem to know their neighbors really well, it's a really uh, kind of homey feel that it creates for um, for the city. Um, and so that's, that's one of the major, um, points of the, the chapter. Another nostalgia is just this notion of what I talk about the level playing field that competition shows like the amazing race, uh, are, um, present the city as a place where anybody can make it, that they cast people of various classes, ethnicities, um, uh, uh, genders, um, sexual orientations, and they're all running through these global capitalist cities. So you've got working class people, um, various minorities um, running through these rich areas, but the rich areas aren't even presented as rich. They're presented as steeped in history. So, you know, this is, you know, the challenges are about what they would do in like the 19th century. Um, so it really is in touch with the, with the historical roots of the city. Um, uh, and not the contemporary um, global business land that the, the city is. And, uh, and also entrepreneurship, rags to riches stories, um, that it really simplifies the way that global capitalism works and really presents this uh, nostalgia for the American dream, that if you just show up in the city, it's a, it's a land of opportunity and anybody can make it there through, um, through hard work and, uh, 
you know, and that's certainly, you know, not the case with the financial business. It's so complex. It's so hard to understand. But on reality television, we don't go into those areas, right? It's just like, if you just try hard, you can, you can make it as an entrepreneur. Um, and the entrepreneurs simplified and uh, very, um, it's never presented in uh, the complexities of the contemporary business world. It's just, you know, work hard, have a good product, and you will be rewarded. So, um, so, um, so I, I really wanted to do something about that split between the, um, the contemporary city that we see and these kind of nostalgic stories and sounds that we have for the city. And also just the fact that so many of these people cast on these shows retain these um, ethnic working class accents that you know, linguistic scholars are talking about that these cities are losing those accents because um, as the cities become unaffordable, that working class, these ethnicities are being displaced into outer commuter zones. Um, and so it's important that we have you know, people on The Real Housewives with these um, uh, marked working class accents that mark this residual moment in history of where anybody could make it in the the city. And I think just the sounds we hear are as important as, as the plots that we, uh, that we, uh, follow. Right. And you, so you mentioned the real housewives and that sort of moves into you talk, looking at Bravo. And so can you talk a little bit about the Bravo network and how you see how they look at urban servitude as you talk about, and, and just that role? Yeah, well, I mean, it's so fascinating, um, Bravo, because on the one hand, if you look at um, like the sociology of um, of contemporary cities, um, again and again, you hear people talking about the city being transformed into a place for the elite and the the poor and and the serving class. So, um, you know, the serving class plays a very valuable function and keeping the elite up and running in the cities. But you so rarely see that on reality television, that so much of it is just about the city or the elite. But but it's that one channel, Bravo, that continually displays the life of servers uh, in restaurants and also the servants who work in the homes of, of the elite. So I really wanted to figure out why Bravo, like what's, what's going on on this channel that makes servers and servants valuable to them, to their brand identity. And the thing that I, I, you know, I think I came to the conclusion on is that Bravo loves the rich. Um, They love to celebrate the rich but they also love to laugh at the rich. And so it's a very unstable relationship that we have that uh, Bravo executives talk about affluencers in their audience. And that is, you know, people who have a high income, who are connected to digital devices, who mirror the, uh, the characters on the screen. The characters on the screen are there to draw in this affluent audience but the characters are on the screen are also on the screen are also laughed at and made to be fools, and so it's a very unstable depiction of of the elite. So that's where the servers and servants enter. Um, that they um, are there to stabilize what we think about the elite because the geographies of the poor on Bravo are seen as inferior to the geographies of affluence, um, to the geographies of, um, of the rich. So um, when we look at the servers on Bravo, we don't watch them with sympathy or empathy. We don't watch them to gain a greater awareness of a social class that we um, are either a part of or, or we don't know and we want to learn more about is that we watch them as failures as human beings on some level. And, and that's what makes the rich okay. Um, you know, I used Edward Said's concept of the other, um, of transforming those 
um, of looking at those without social power through this lens of the abnormal. So that when we look at servers and servants as abnormal, as backwards, as somehow deficient, that makes the rich seem normal. And so when we're watching Bravo, there's a, it attempts to normalize this whole worldview that the rich belong in the city, um, that it's their place to be because everything about them is fully functioning. Um, uh, it's not seen as wrong. It, it's seen as just. It's seen as normal. And, uh, and so, um, so yeah, so the, the deficiencies of the servers and servers make the rich seem as rightful heirs to, to the city. And we see that in, in various ways, uh, that I talk about in the chapter. And in one ways, uh, there's the, the figure of the degenerate server and that's on, uh, the Vanderpump rules is that, um, they seem so out of control. The servers on that show um, work at Lisa Vanderpump's restaurant, Sir. Uh, Lisa Vanderpump is one of the real housewives of Beverly Hills. So uh, on Vanderpump rules, um, we see servers uh, othered in various ways. Um, Lisa's always talking them about them as like some kind of sex freaks as they're always having like orgies or they're always dating people in the company that they shouldn't, that they need to be tame and learn proper sexual etiquette. Um, she's always talking about them as like failed business people, um, that they don't belong in the business world, that they belong like working at uh, Sir. Um, and even though she encourages them to work in the entertainment industry, she often kind of comes down on them in hard ways and tells them their job is to serve tables and it's not to audition in Hollywood and they need to get their priorities straight and, uh, and work for her. And, and their, their raucous behavior is often contrasted with the proper civilized behavior of Lisa in her home and Lisa's family. So, um, and Lisa's also like diagnosing them as criminals when they get busted by the cops, Lisa will bring them into her restaurant and say like, you've been arrested, you know, one more, offense and you're, you know, you're, you're fired from here. So, uh, so on there, the servers are really degenerates. Um, and then at that point, there's also, uh, two other, uh, modes of representing servers, uh, servants that I talk about in the chapter. One is the, the noble savage, the, the server who, um, seems to blend in with the mansion grounds, uh, at home. And we see that a lot on the real housewives of uh, there's a certain tranquility to the backyards and the property. Um, there's a natural beauty to that. And it's there that we see many of the, the servants working um, and they only are there to please their um, employer, that they don't really exist as people, that they exist simply to, to make their um, employer happy, but um, also to to grant them um, leisure that because they're willing to do this work, then the employer can go out and go to parties and play tennis and uh, go to nightclubs. Um, and so there's a real gentleness to, to those uh, servants on the, the real housewives. And then you also have the, the silly uh, server servant uh, on uh, flipping out uh, which is where um, it really uh, plays into certain stereotypes of the Latina maid um, and that they're there for comic relief. Uh, but within, within that show, Flipping Out, what's interesting is that everybody... So Flipping Out is a, is a reality show about uh, Jeff Lewis, who runs a uh, home flipping business out of his own home. And everybody works in that business uh, in Jeff's home. So he has a whole slew of, um, of, of, of employees working in his home. And he's really mean to, to all of them, uh, in, including his maid. Uh, but, um, but what's interesting is he belittles them, but then he'll help them out for their own professional gain, take them out into the field, 
um, show them how the business operates and try to put them in a better position within the real estate business, within the flipping business. But the maid is the only one who never gets to leave the house, that, that Jeff constantly belittles her and she just accepts it and is there for kind of comic relief. And uh, everybody kind of laughs at the maid. So the, the maid becomes confined to the home um, and, uh, and all the other people who work there get to go out and advance their careers. Which is sort of, it seems very much so the case with all of them, right? Even in Vanderpump Rules, like, yes, like you're talking about, you're not, we're not going to advance your career. I'm not going to help you out. You're just here to help me out. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly it. <laughs> I know. I have to say, I I don't watch Bravo as much as the other shows, but the, yeah. there was one scene where you're talking about the um, in Real Housewives. I think the somebody had one of the help had left, and then came back, yes. and she was like, "Look at here's all the laundry you have to do for me." <laughs> So I can be a mom, right? Right. Yeah. That's a a great uh, homecoming welcome. Yes. It's all here. I can't be a mom without you. I need to go play tennis now. That's right. That's right. (laughs) So your next, I'm going to move back to, because your next chapter sort of moves into that idea of like holding on to those urban identities and the accents and that working class. And so you talk about two of my favorite people in reality TV. Both of them, Boston Rob in New York, um, coming from very different television shows. But um, can you talk a little bit about Chapter 4 and why you picked these two characters, because they are really characters that they've created, um, to to focus on? Because I think they're probably perfect for this (laughs) chapter. But can you talk a a little bit about the both... um, Boston Rob and New York and, and why you chose them. Yeah. And I should, I should say before I get started, this chapter four was, was my favorite chapter to write Um, in part, just drawing together some of the quotes. I I found myself laughing so hard um, because they are both such delightful um, characters Um, and they are, um, they're so over the top and, uh, and they, they play their parts so well. Um, yeah. So what, what drew me to this chapter, um, initially it was actually, uh, I was actually including other people and I was just looking kind of at, um, the notion of kind of lowbrow culture and stardom on reality television. And it wasn't coming together. Um, at one point I had Farrah Abraham from a uh, teen mom in there too, and it just, it, it wasn't gelling. And so I was trying to figure out why. And then it suddenly dawned on me. I'm just looking at the names and I'm like, of course, this is it. Like you've got two characters here who are named after cities. And so that that has to be the focus of, um, of the chapter, um, you know, that, that you're dealing with people who are portraying, like who have become like the city um, of their name on these reality television shows. So that has to be kind of like you're into this phenomenon. Um, and so what, what's fascinating though, is that they both have the names of, you know, two of, of America's global cities, uh, New York and, and Boston. And so, and so, and what makes it even, even more interesting is that, they're both reality gamers. Um, and that's, that's a hard life to live. Like that, that's usually a very short shelf life. If you're a reality gamer, um, that, you know, usually you're, you're in there for one season and most people don't remember 90% of the, of the gamers. So the fact that they became stars as reality gamers and they went on different shows, I, I thought was, was interesting. Um, so I really wanted to figure out what what was what was Boston Rob what were Boston Rob in New York kind of telling us about contemporary city life and and the way that we think about the contemporary uh, city and so for Boston Rob he was such a nostalgic character because if you look at um, writings about like Italian American ethnicity and and Boston is that I think we've reached a point where most of the 
of the long established Boston Italian Americans are are no longer there that they've they've left and gone to either you know suburbs or outer commuter zones or just different parts of the country and these once thriving um, late 19th century, early 20th century Italian American neighborhoods, they might retain those ethnic markers, but they don't retain the population that they they had. And so Boston Rob, I think, he's so delightful because you know he has this thick Bostonian accent and he he marks himself as Italian and he's always wearing Boston clothes and Boston caps. Um, and so he really lets us um, kind of think that these these early 20th century ethnic identities um, from the cities are, are still around and and thriving. And and part of what makes Boston Rob so fun is that not only does he play up these stereotypes of Italian Americans, um, but that he makes them the driving logic of his gameplay. So it's not just that he pretends to be a gangster and a tough guy, or that he pretends to be an Italian American trickster. Um, but that, that really determines his game moves that when he plays as a gangster in most of his seasons, I mean, he really, I mean, he talks about himself as the Godfather. He quotes the Godfather and he talks about, and he uses those lines um, from the Godfather to strategize of like, you know, make people fear you and, you know, and, 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 and they'll follow you. And, uh, and so he's so, he's so, and that's what he does. I mean, that's the great, that's the great thing about it. Um, and then, you know, and oh, go, go oh, no, ahead. I was go just going to say, he's always very honest in telling people what he's doing and everybody's just like, he's not going to do that, right? In these ways that have set up how Survivor has been played ever since he was on that show, right? Everybody aspires to be, though there's certain characters who aspire to be Boston Rob. That is correct. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and and maybe the worst thing that ever happened to Survivor is that Boston Rob finally won because maybe if he didn't, he'd still be coming back to play. Um, but he's he's so he's so much fun. And then the, the all-star season to me is is the most fun because that's when he breaks from that godfather figure that he plays in most seasons, and, and that's how he won season 22. But he plays as this trickster figure. Um, who just exploits people's greed. And it's right out of like the Italian American trickster stereotype, but, but he does it so well. And he's so, um, yeah, I mean, I think you're right that he's so honest about what he's doing and he narrates to the audience about what he's doing. And, uh, you know, he'll cut deals and say like, Oh, I've got your back. And he'll play to the people's greed and their sense of self-worth and then the next moment, he'll just cut him and uh, and laugh about it and say like he didn't think I was serious and uh, and so and he just exposes everybody as a fraud and uh, and that's what makes the All Star season um, so delightful. Um, so yeah, Boston Rob I think is very much about um, about this nostalgia for for this uh, ethnic uh, working class in uh, uh, early twentieth century America ethnic urban working class. Now, New York is such an over-the-top camp figure. And, and there are quotes from her that I just had to, to laugh. I mean, I really was laughing so hard when I was putting down some of her quotes. And as much as I'm critical of the, the way that sometimes New York is, is hung out for laughs in, um, in I Love New York, I still find her to be such an endearing camp figure. Um, and she's just a character that I, I, uh, I truly love, but yeah, I mean, New York, I mean, there's no nostalgia there for her. I mean, she is like this larger than life city. And I, I make the point in the, in the book too, that she's not even from New York city. She's from, she's from Syracuse, but they, they, they cut that part out and just make it seem like she is New York and, and she and Flav who is from New York city you know, are, are embody this kind of larger than life New York persona. Um, but, you know, I think the difference with New York and Boston Rob is that the, the humor 
around New York, we don't have to imagine Black urban poverty as a thing of the past, is that that's still persistent in today's cities. And there's kind of like two like two things that are going on in I Love New York. One is is New York. I mean, and she's over the top, campy. I mean, she's got these, I mean, her clothes and her eyelashes, everything about her is excessive. It's fantastic. Um, but then the show itself, at certain points, kind of makes fun of kind of low, like how lowbrow a lot of these African-Americans are. And, you know, in the book, I talk about like, that's just taking black poverty as something to laugh at. And that's, and that's just, that's how we have to relate to Italian American ethnicity through nostalgia um, in, uh, in Boston Rob. But with New York, um, it seems like black poverty has a rightful place in the city because it's something that, that we can laugh at and be entertaining. So, um, yeah, I think there's like kind of like two different things going on there. One is the delightful persona of, of Tiffany Pollard as New York. And then two, it's kind of how the show packages, uh, black poverty. And, and that's pretty problematic. Which is very different than how they were packaging it in the early nineties. And granted we had, VH1 and MTV, but the, but you also talk about how VH1 sort of changed how they packaged reality television for themselves. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it really is like an evolution of of just trying different different brand identities. And by the time we get to the mid two thousands, their their whole thing is like we're going to look at pop culture's past and we're going to laugh at it. And, and that's why Flavor of Love is so important to them because Flav is a figure of the past um, and they really kind of hang him out as a figure to laugh at. Um, and New York grows out of that um, branding initiative, but she's kind of their fir- first homegrown reality star. She's a contestant on Flavor of Love and she's also moving them away from laughing at the past um, of popular culture and creating their own reality stars and then create several after her. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned one of the things I talk to my students often about and the clock used that was really political for a long time. And then it just turned into this sort of device to. So so you, so you, you see, so give us those sort of case studies and then your final group of, um, case studies really looks at the rural reality television and, and that idea of those rural spaces and how we think about those. And so can you talk a little bit about that and what you're doing in chapter five? Yeah. um, Yeah. It's kind of a different take. I mean, to finish a book on urban reality shows with a chapter (laughs) on on rural reality shows, right. Uh, It's, it's an odd ending, but um, you know, I, 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 I start off that chapter with the uh, cultural studies scholar Raymond Williams, who says that there's a, a symbiotic relationship between the country and the city in, uh, in fiction. And that is when, we, when our cities are going through the most profound changes, um, we often look to the country as a space of tranquility, um, as a space that has um, many of the values that seem to be missing in the city as it's going through this, this uh, period of transformation. And so I wanted to see, you know, if, you know, okay, so how can we use that to make sense of this, these rural reality shows? And, you know, the whole book looks at cities are transforming, that they're, they're pushing people out of the city and making it spaces for the, the global elite and their the serving class. Um, so we have, but we have these rural shows that are about how you can maintain a multi-generational approach to the place you were born. And I think that's how it fits into this history of urban reality shows is that as most of us no longer have that lived connection to the city where we can continue to live in a city that we might've been born into or that our families have lived in that rural reality shows tell us that the good life is still available and 
that connection to to land, that multi-generational connection to land is there. It's just in the countries now. So um, I look at kind of two different strategies that we see on rural reality shows and how they um, get us to embrace contemporary city culture. One is that they offer like a, a temporary escape from the city, um, that you can escape from the city and it's expelling people from the land and go into this nice fictive space where you can, you can stay there forever. Um, and then the second type, and those types of shows would be like Moonshiners, Alaska, The Last Frontier, um, Swamp People. And then the second strategy is um, uh, reality shows that laugh at the country, um, that see the country as backwards, as freakish, as othered. Um, and those shows, I think, make us aspire to live in the city because the country scene is so backwards and so repulsive that nobody would want to be there. So, um, so of course you would embrace contemporary urban life. Um, and, and that show, uh, you know, kind of the quintessential show of, 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 of the, of that type of reality TV would be like, here comes honey boo boo, where in fact, I mean, I talk about this in the chapter, one of the episodes actually seems to like actually put that reading strategy into practice where they bring in, um, so here comes honey boo boo is about, if you've never seen it is about, uh, uh, this family headed by Mama June and her daughter Alana, who wants to be uh, who's who's in uh, who's six years old and is in beauty pageants, and so Mama June brings in a beauty coach, uh, pageant coach from Atlanta to the rural country, uh, Georgia home to teach the girls uh, manners, and uh, Alana comes out and greets her, holding their pet pig. Uh, uh, when the woman's giving her etiquette lessons, one of the daughters asks if it's okay to fart at the table. And it, it's really, it's hung out, they're hung out to be like such a repulsive family that they find roadkill on the side of the road and they take it back to to the home and cook it. And, you know, from a, an environmental standpoint, some, some people might embrace that as, you know, using uh, available food. But um, certainly I think, you know, the way the show presents it, it's lacking basic like food, uh, hygiene. And, uh, you know, it's a family that is meant to kind of scare us, um, even though there are some sincere moments on the show, it kind of scare us back into the city um, that, that we shouldn't spend too much time in the country. <laughs> um. And with the other, so you have that show and with the others, such as Moonlighter, Moonshiners, Moonlighters, Moonshiners, and also the, um, the Swamp one, which I'm totally blanking on, but I've Thank you. Which, but I've watched. You also sort of challenge how they portray um, women and people of color, and how that sort of plays out in those shows. Could you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, they're they're interesting shows because if you if you just start to watch them from season like season one, episode one, it's all about the history of the place, um, and that uh, you know these people, like if you're making moonshine, your family's been doing it for multi-generations. Um, if you're hunting alligators, you know, your family's been doing that for, for multiple generations. Um, and then they cut that in with other historical footage. So in Moonshiners, they show this, uh, these two Moonshiners, Tim and Tickle, making their moonshine in the woods. And then they contrast that with this uh, Super 8 footage of legendary moonshiner Popcorn Sutton, uh, who, you know, made moonshine, you know, years ago. Um, and Swamp People's very similar. The, uh, families will be hunting alligators, and then they'll cut to, um, you know, the way that uh, Native Americans used to, to hunt alligators in the 16th century, you know, 17th century. But what you begin to see is that it's a nostalgia for kind of white patriarchal culture and that all of these people who are rightful heirs to the land um, are white men. And, um, and the shows really struggle when they try to, to, to find um, uh, people of color, women, and their relationship to the land, um, that they're, they're not really willing to understand the history in the same terms. Um, so for example, on Swamp People, there's an African-American family that's, that's 
that are hunting gators. Um, and we learn a little bit about um, uh, African-Americans uh, escaping slavery and hunting alligators in the swamp. But the most of the story in contemporary setting is how this, this family, this lineage of African-American alligator hunters is going to come to an end, that, uh, that the sons of the alligator hunter um, have left the area and live in New Orleans and are coming back to the swamp. And they're really bad at, uh, at hunting alligators. And so you're really left to think like, oh, this, this history is coming to an end. And the Native American hunters too, um, they're presented in these mystical terms of, uh, you know, we use uh, like a special sauce or a special juice on our bait. Um, but that history really isn't developed much the same way it is with the white characters. And the women uh, are are only positioned in relationship to the family patriarchs, that they they can't exist as female alligator hunters in and of themselves, that there's no history, that the shows won't allow a history of female alligator hunters, that when women are hunting alligators, that the confessional interviews, just they talk about how they do it just to be closer to their fathers, you know, who have died. And it, it's a, rem- it's a way to remember their dads. So, um, so that history that exists so naturally for the, the white men on the show, um, uh, has a really aw- awkward fit for, um, for people who have other identities. Yeah. Right. And so you sort of have a conclusion that, that really challenges how we look at reality television and how we sort of move these stories ahead so can you just sort of, you know, talk about that a little bit as we come to the end here about how you sort of want this want this framework and want people to look at thinking about how we view and create reality television? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, yeah, I, I work at a university that has kind of like a, a social justice mission um, that they really want to see... Um, uh, a lot of our academic theories put into action to um, to improve society, and 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 certainly working at Seton Hall has influenced the way that I think about how my scholarship could be used, like for bettering like society. Um, and so, yeah, the, the ending in some ways takes us back to the beginning of the book. Um, that is to see um, early tw- like tw- early reality television, like twentieth century reality television was always about challenging what it meant to, to, to live in a city that um, Candid Camera really focused on um, challenging post-war definitions of femininity, um, uh, specifically like female drivers and um, uh, how they're ditzy, how they shouldn't have access to, to cars. And Candid Camera was a feminist show. Um, uh, it, it made fun of those notions in order to give women access to mobility. Um, and, and American family really showed the fall of the patriarchal nuclear family to, to make room for, um, women and LGBT family members and, and their rights. And so I end, I end the book in part by saying we could get back to the way reality television was. And that was most of the chap, like chapters two through five have traced how their cultural moves made to make us okay with city life the way it is, like to make us not question it and to see the rich as kind of the rightful heirs to the city or to see um, the way that uh old 20th century identities are still part of city life when they're not, but that's the whole kind of theme of nostalgia that runs throughout the book. And so I really wonder what it would be like, you know, since future generations of storytellers are, are right in our classrooms, right? That they're reading our books, uh, that they're, they're taking notes in our class. I mean, what would it be like if they were challenged to think about, you know, could you create a reality show about, servers or servants in contemporary cities and understand them on their own terms or humanize them or normalize them instead of othering them the way that uh that bravo does or instead of thinking about the the working class 
uh, in nostalgic terms, you know, like Boston Rob as rightful heirs to the city, um, as proper residents of the city. I mean, what would a reality show look like if you looked at the vulnerability of the working class in contemporary cities and and how hard it is um, to to make it there? Uh, and that's you know, it's something I even bring into um, to my own classes and. You know, it's like so for like a creative project in my reality television class, you know, I offer them numerous options. But but one of them, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of silly, but it is to sit a, set a season of Survivor in like a working class, like a, an Italian neighborhood in Boston. And what would it mean to literally be kicked out of the neighborhood? And like, how could you change things? And it is a silly premise. But, you know, it can get at like some progressive views. And I first of all, I should fully admit, I don't think that that reality show would ever sell or get made. But, you know, it is a, <laughs> kind of a starting point to, to get students to think about alternative ways to tell stories. So, so it's been really great talking about your book. Do you have anything you're working on now that you want to talk about, like just shout out about or are you just sort of? Yeah. So like right now I'm working on a book uh, just for the Wayne State University Press TV Milestone series on uh, Route 66, uh, which is a 1960s TV show that I've always been fascinated by because they shot on location and then everywhere, you know, so they just show up to a town and write an episode based on it. So in some ways, my fascination with space and reality television is carrying over into that project. But uh, what I really would like to do after that, that's a very short book project, is uh, is look at uh, reality television in the right at the dawn of the 21st century, and and look at all the scandals that were were associated with it then, and and how it was viewed as complete trash, and how reality shows would show up, and various activist groups would protest it, and you know the shows would be pulled right away, and uh, and then look at what made reality television respectable, um, you know, so it wasn't that almost circus-like environment of the, the 20th century. But that that project's going to take a little while to, to <laughs> yes. get into shape. Those, the milestone <laughs> ones are those tiny little ones that they have, right? They're, they're very yeah. adorable yeah. as a yeah. physical object. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they are. Yeah, they look yes. really, really good. So, well, thank you so much for talking with me again. This was John Kurchevsky, who wrote Reality TV. Thanks, John. Thank you, Rebecca. I really, really appreciate it.